You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation Podcast, episode 139. Today's guest is river explorer and conservationist Mike Fiebig, who is the Associate Director of the Northern Rockies Office of American Rivers. The lines of Mike's personal and professional passion for wild rivers and wild places have blurred. And he's about to embark on an adventure in advocacy. A human-powered source-to-sea river trip on the green in Colorado from the crest of the Wind River Range in Wyoming to the Gulf of California and Mexico. Along the way, he and his wife Jenny will collect stories of the importance of this river from the people they meet en route. I sat down with Mike to discuss the inspiration behind this bold undertaking. Have a listen. I'm Mike Fiebig. I am the Associate Director of the Northern Rockies Office of American Rivers. So I do river conservation for most of my day job. And a little bit of outdoor education, a little bit of river guiding still, too. Tell me about who you came up to be. Like, you know, your relationship yeah. with rivers and, and how it how they became, you know, an important component of 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 who you are as a person first. Yeah, so so I grew up in Michigan, surrounded by water and rivers. I grew up in the the horseshoe bend of Bear Creek in uh west central lower peninsula of Michigan. And rivers I never really thought that rivers were a big part of my life until I moved west to the arid west. Um Moved out to Colorado in the late 90s to go to graduate school and just answered an ad in a paper to go on a... I, I didn't know anyone when I moved out there. I had, a, I had a spring break coming up. I was dirt poor. Everyone else was traveling. And I didn't think I wanted to be a river guide, but I sure wanted to go on this interview trip on the Upper Salt River in Arizona during my spring break. For me, it was just about the, the trip, but I, uh, I ended up falling in love with guiding and getting hired on by that company and ultimately leaving grad school to, to be a full-time guide, much to the chagrin of my parents at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so you started there, and, but at some point you transitioned into, into Knowles, yes? Yeah, so I started, I started as a whitewater rafting guide. I, I do this circuit where I'd guide in Colorado in the summer on the the Arkansas, the Dolores River, the North Platte River, the Dolores back when it had water in it, the Gunnison in the upper Colorado. In the fall, I'd go to West Virginia and guide on the Gully River over the deep winter. I'd go down to Big Bend National Park in Texas and guide on the, the Rio Grande River. The spring, I'd go to the Salt River in Arizona, and then I'd do the whole thing all over again. I did that for about four years until on a Grand Canyon trip, my very first Grand Canyon trip, private trip, as the Grand Canyon trip will affect people, I, uh, I had a lot of reflection time and decided that I wanted to give more back with the skills that I had, and uh, I wanted to teach. I, I was growing a little tired of guiding, and, and uh, my, my interest drew me to Knowles. What, what was your primary role within, within Knowles then? So, so I was a field instructor, so leading late teens, early 20s, out on river trips to start. So it's so what really introduced me to the Colorado system. We were based in northeastern Utah, and so we were working in Dinosaur National Monument on the Yampa and Gates of Lador of the Green River, and then uh, Desolation Canyon of the Green in the San Juan. And within the, the, the context of 
of both working as a as a guide and then also for Knowles. Do you feel like your relationship with this, with this ecosystem, with these, you know, was changing? Were you, I mean, it was, it wasn't, it was less recreation, perhaps, and more sort of changing into something a little bit different? Yeah, the the interesting thing that happened, so when, when I was guiding, um, I've had a lot of time to reflect on this now. At the time, I didn't really realize that. I, I felt like guiding was a lot more customer service at the time. I realize now that guiding can be way more than that, and it is. You know, when you, when people get guided in the backcountry, a lot of times it's their first time, and they take their cues and their budding environmental ethics from whatever their guides are doing and whatever whatever example they set. At the time, I felt like it was a little more customer service based, and I felt like that example uh, was more of my opportunity at Knowles teaching students. So teaching them instead of Instead of taking them on a river, I was teaching them how to go on river trips on their own, how to how to exist in the backcountry, how to plan their own food, re- manage their own risks at some future date. You're saying that, that having these relationships and, and sort of watching people on their first backcountry expedition, right? How did how were you witnessing them transform? A lot of these students would come from a traditional education experience in public or private schools where they were told that they weren't smart and they didn't do well on tests and they didn't sit well in chairs. Um, They didn't play traditional team sports. But then they'd come on a month-long, two-month-long expedition and they'd find that their skills that were never tried in school, that were never given uh, the opportunity to grow in school, were just what they needed for for working and playing and and leading others in the backcountry. It's pretty amazing to see. With some of the most memorable students for me, you'd see a, a total transformation. You know, over the course of a month or a semester, they'd go from having somewhat of a lack of confidence to feeling like they had the skills and experience to really contribute to their peers and and make their way in the world. Pretty amazing. And um, from that particular perspective of <clears throat> Knowles and, and, and seeing how, how being in nature, being in wilderness can, can transform people, and how did you then utilize that in your professional sort of realm? Did you stick with Knowles? Did you, did you move on? How... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, all, all along the way, uh, living... 150 to 200 days in the backcountry a year was transforming me too. It was transforming the way I saw the world and the way I saw my surroundings. So over the course of, you know, eight years of living on rivers and guiding people through mountains and uh, spending time in between in the back of a truck, uh, living out of that, um, I saw a lot of the places that gave a lot to me and gave a lot to my students being harmed, disappearing being developed, drilled, what have you, um, threatened in some way, shape, or form, and uh, decided I need to give a little more back to that. I was also reaching a point where, um, you know, it sounds it sounds uh, romantic to live out of a truck year-round and, and spend all those days in, in wild places, and it is in a lot of ways until you, you find yourself, you know, 
eating cold beans out of the back of a snowy truck because you can't afford to do anything else in the off season. Um, so I was, I was ready to use my mind a little more, use the experience that I had, um, and, uh, and try to protect the places that I've come to love. How did you get involved with American Rivers then? Yeah, so it was a, it was a bit of a, a circular route to American Rivers. I, I decided to go to graduate school and get a degree in, in natural resources policy and, and conflict resolution at the University of Montana. It seemed like a soft re-entry back into the, the front country world. And, you know, Montana has a lot of great outdoor amenities to offer, and so I was able to still spend a lot of time outdoors. And uh, immediately coming out of that, I, I took a, I was lucky enough to, to be able to take a presidential management fellowship and work for the Forest Service for a couple of years. That's what brought me to Bozeman, Montana. And after that two-year stint was up, after my fellowship was complete, I, uh, I just so happened to stumble across an American Rivers job posting here, which, which was really fortuitous. I, so back way when I was in Colorado and, and guiding out there, uh, Charles Wilkinson, the law professor from the University of Colorado, had come out to give a, a number of us a talk on river conservation and how we could work with our clients. And I remember way back then, um, he uh, suggested a number of other ways to get involved. And one of them was one of the organizations that he mentioned way back then was American Rivers. So American Rivers had been in my head for a long time. Uh, I had put off applying for one of their DC policy fellowships for years and, and just had kind of forgotten about it. But then when this came up in the hometown that I was living in, and I had friends that were working with American Rivers at the time on, on this wild and scenic campaign that I'm now part of, encouraging me to apply, um, it just seemed like all the stars aligned. I got to work with friends, got to work on, on, on something that I loved, and, uh, and move into this new, new role. What are you primarily working on at American Rivers, and what's your overall goal to, in terms of your role? My primary work at American Rivers is public lands policy. So I do public lands policy in mostly Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming, somewhat down in the Colorado Plateau, too, uh, in Utah. But it's a mix of a few different things. I, my work, I'm lucky enough to be able to work on, on protecting wild rivers, something I care about a lot. The tool that I use to do that mostly is the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act, which turns 50 this year. It's the 50th anniversary of the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act. It was passed in October 2nd, 1968. And uh, so we've got a number of things going, whether it's working with the Forest Service on forest plan revisions, working with the BLM on resource management plan revisions to catalog inventory and protect rivers that are well, are eligible for a designation under the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act, or grassroots advocacy campaigns to designate more rivers. So, for instance, East Rosebud Creek in Montana is currently in Congress, it just has to pass the House, and then it'll be Montana's first Wild and Scenic designation in 40 years. So... Fingers crossed <laughs> that that can happen in the next two months or so. So, so a lot of time has has passed, and there's been you know a river guide, a knolls leader, 
you know, into graduate school and, and working for the Forest Service and American Rivers. And then, so, so there is this sort of mesh of personal and professional. And, and of course, you know, I assume the, the given is that adventure is a big part of who you fundamentally are, given that's where this all started. Um, where are you going next with this yeah, the, the two lines have really blurred, um, <laughs> which which is great in so many ways. You know, I feel I feel pretty lucky about that. It also means that I I end up working a lot on things that I would would both normally do for fun and for and for work. Um, the next thing we're doing, I'm I, I've been at American Rivers now almost seven years, and AR has this great policy of a sabbatical every seven years. Of two to six months. So I, uh, a couple of years ago when it dawned on me that I was, I was heading toward a sabbatical, I thought, okay, what would you do with potentially six months away from work? What would that look like? And for me, I've, I've really grown to love the, the Colorado, Colorado Plateau and the Colorado River system. I've, I've paddled wild rivers all over the world and lots of them that are higher volume, uh, they're uh, more pristine, they're less used and abused, they're farther afield than exotic locales, but there's something about the Colorado ecosystem, the Colorado River ecosystem, that just pulls me back again and again and again, particularly the plateau, the, the desert canyons, um, yeah, I just, I can't get it out of my skin. So, so something my wife, Jenny and I have been talking about for ages has been descending the full length of the Colorado system. So the headwaters of the green river in the wind river range in Wyoming to the Gulf of California and Mexico at the Colorado river Delta 1700 miles later. So that's what we're going to do for our sabbatical. And because uh, I can't seem to leave this work and 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 recreation piece uh, separate, what I what we thought would be really neat to do would be to catalog people's stories all the way down. So most of those people will be people we just run into on the river here and there, but there will be some that we set up interviews with, and just to get this this great picture all in one period of time of a cross-section of the people that love and live along the Colorado River. So from the, the ranchers in the far upper green to the farmers and irrigators down in Mexico on the Colorado Delta, and then everyone in between, houseboaters, jet boaters, whitewater enthusiasts, river managers, writers, and then whoever we just run into. Because I know that this isn't a new idea. You right. guys weren't just like, yay, here's what we'll do. Right. So, so what has it taken to get, you got, to get you to the point of, okay, we've got this, we've got this idea going. Um, this actually is going to go, right? <laughs> yeah. Because there is a difference between like, here's a really great idea to like, <laughs> no, this is going to happen. Yeah, I think so. One of, the, one of the pieces of advice I give to anyone that, that wants to do kind of an audacious expedition Tell a lot of people about it 
and then you'll have so much, so much, uh, uh, kind of shame for backing out that you won't back out. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of this set yourself up for peer pressure that way. So, you know, when we first decided we wanted to do this thing, it was a couple of years ago and we knew we had to commit a couple of years ago because of the, the lottery system for the permits, you know, back in the day, you could just get on the Colorado river you know, John Wesley Powell didn't have to apply for permits. Buzz Holmstrom didn't apply for permits. They just put in and went whenever they felt like it. Um, that's not the case anymore. To get a Grand Canyon permit, um, it's a lottery that you have to apply for two years, basically, before your launch date, about a year and a half before your launch date. So uh, we had to start planning really early on. And to do that, to get that Grand Canyon permit, the hardest permit in the system to get, and one of the hardest permits to get in this country, we knew we had to get a lot of friends applying. And uh, for those of you who want to apply for Colorado River permits, uh, one is able to look up the statistics on every date you want to apply for to see how many people applied and how many permits are drawn. So you can you you know what your chances are and you know how many people you have to enlist. So we... We enlisted 125 friends to apply for <laughs> permits on the date that we needed in the center of this trip to piece it all together in one big wow. bundle. And one person got the permit. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. And then everything and else permits. has been built around it. And that's right. just the permit. Right. Yeah. And then what else is, has fallen into place? So with my current job, I'm lucky enough to... I'm, like I spend a lot of time behind a computer and on a phone and sitting in meetings and and doing you know what a, a modern river conservationist does. Um, but one of the things I'm lucky enough to do is to participate in this yearly trip down the Yampa River. It's the last free flowing tributary of size in the Colorado, and Friends of the Yampa River, American Rivers, and the guiding company Oars have been taking people down for the past. Gosh, it's been five to ten years to try to keep the Yampa that way. So we're talking river managers, conservationists, uh, writers, artists, local business people, all on this trip together every year. Um, Ors donates their their launch for this, and we go down and we talk about how to keep the Yampa free flowing, and and we get really interesting results out of it. Um, people that were formerly on the side of developing the, the Yampa come out of it saying, no, this needs to stay the way it is. It was kind of that old model of immersing people. One of the people on this trip last year was John St. John, who owns Hog Island Boat Works out of Steamboat, Colorado. He, he was on there with us. Um, he lives right at the headwaters of the Yampa. And I was telling him about this, this river trip, uh, this source to sea trip over over drinks one evening around the campfire. And he said, well, guess what? I own a, I own a company that makes boat hauls. They're, they're plastic boat hauls. And is that something you could use on this trip? And I jumped at the opportunity. It was a really uh, generous offer for him to, to help with this. And one of the traditions of big kind of source to see river running on the Colorado is building your own boat. So, for the longest time, that was of necessity. You know, you uh, people were having boats built, purpose made for that. From from John Wesley Powell on, you know, Powell first 
By the way, Powell, uh, next year is going to be 150 years since Powell did his trip to in 1869. Hmm. So, so from him on, uh, people have been building a boat to do this trip. And so we thought, well, this is really cool. We're going to build our own boat too. Right. And, that is cool. <laughs> yeah. So we, just this spring, about a month ago, actually, I guess it's winter, um, the boat hull was rotomolded in California, in Madera, California, the largest oven of its kind in the world. And then I arranged to have it shipped to Eddy Line Welding in Moab because right now the the hull is a drift boat hull. It's a, it's a fishing hull. But to make a Colorado River-style dory, it needs to be decked with dry boxes in it. Not only to shed water, but to store gear. And to be able to live on it, we're actually going to live on this boat for a, a lot of the time. Especially as we row across the reservoirs. We'll be sleeping right on the boat itself. So, uh, Mike Dehoff at Eddie Line Welding. I, I was actually just down in Moab last week. attacked a Moab trip onto a work trip I had to do down there anyways. And we worked out a, a, a rough design for the decks and the dry boxes and so forth. And that's starting to be built right now. Crazy. And do you have, in terms of, of, uh, support, um, even just like trip support, we're, we're good to really rely on friends for, for trip support. You know, a lot of these river sections, are permitted sections of river and they're, and they're river sections that people want to do. You know, these, uh, the gates of Lador, desolation and gray canyons, labyrinth and Stillwater canyons and, uh, Canyonlands national park, cataract Canyon, the grand Canyon, the black Canyon. These are trips in and of themselves that some people will spend a significant portion of their lives waiting to do. So, we're hoping that friends that want to join us on those discrete portions will also help with, you know, shuttling our, our boat around 11 dams on the mm-hmm. system, um, you know, bringing us resupplies when we need it to. We're going to pack a bunch of boxes of food and other things that will probably wear out over time. It's kind of, it's kind of like doing the Appalachian Trail or uh, the Pacific Crest Trail or something like that. You know, we'll have these resupply boxes of gear and food and items that wear out that will come and go with people along the way. Um, financially we're working on stuff. Uh, we've been kind of sitting on a crowdsourcing campaign for a while. I've just been a little shy about press and go. On it. <laughs> <laughs> there's so many, there's so many great things that people need to fund in the world right now. It's a, uh, it's a it's a humbling experience to think about putting yourself out there to have someone fund your sabbatical trip even mm-hmm, if we mm-hmm. even if we're trying to have a conservation purpose to it it's still it's still our trip and and uh I feel a little sheepish about asking for that's a Michigan for boy. funding that's for it. <laughs> so we're working on that we're, we're, we're also working with uh we're working with some companies too yeah um, yeah yeah that uh Nothing's finalized yet, but there we we feel like at the very least um, we'll be able to to get um, some of the gear we need, and some of the gear will will wear out over the course of mm-hmm. five months and seventeen hundred miles. Donated from the outdoor industry, 
and uh, and maybe some financial help too. What ultimately is is your is your goal in terms of the the conservation side of things? Is there an overarching theme that you really want to capture within this seventeen hundred mile five month journey? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is. Uh, so right now, the there are over ninety thousand dams that impact over 600,000 miles of river across the United States. That's as if one dam was built per day since Thomas Jefferson was president. The only rivers that we have permanently protected from dam building are those protected under the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act. And right now there are only 208 of them, a little over 12,000 miles. So clearly the the balance has not yet been struck. Uh, and you know, I'm not I'm not saying that all all rivers need to run free. And clearly that's not going to happen. But I think we need to realize that wild rivers and wild landscapes are part of who we are as Americans. They're part of our history and and they need to be part of our future. But are there ways that listeners could get involved and, and kind of understand what you're trying to accomplish or, or follow, you know, how things are progressing? We have a website. It's sparse right now. <laughs> We're working on it. It's called OneRiverManyVoices.com. And then uh, we have uh, some social media out there, too, for the One River Expedition. And that's both on Facebook and Instagram. I just love the concept of, of taking adventure and making it part of, you know, your actual life experience and, and making it happen throughout life, not just like when you're 20. Right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I'm really grateful that, you know, to have this time to, to speak with you. And I'm really excited about your trip. Thank you for, for talking with us. Thank you, Catherine. It's been great to talk with you too. Thanks for listening. There's more information on the show notes page, episode 139.